All right, let's go Psalm 87. Psalm 87. Did everybody have a good Christmas? Eat well. Hopefully fit into all your brand new clothes. Psalm 87. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will uh, have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. If you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that time uh, together. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, I can fix that pretty easily, actually. Uh, we got a giant shelf full of them, and they're really nice ones, and I'd love to give them away. And so uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, chief among those important things that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. When we want you to have everything in your life revolving around, filtered through, defined by, valued by uh, what God is calling you to, and, uh, and by knowing Him and walking deeply in a relationship with Him. And if the Scriptures are what He's going to use to to do that in your heart and life, then um, it's pretty smart to uh, to be putting Bibles in people's hands. So if you don't own one that you can call yours, uh, there's a lot of free options online. But man, we can we can do better than that this morning. So come talk to me. So we've already mentioned it this morning, uh, but we've been making this kind of grand effort over the last uh, 10 to 11 months now uh, to walk through the Psalms together as a church. There's 150 Psalms in what we call the Psalter, all right? And so uh, that collection of, of little short stuff, if you're not familiar with the Bible, right in the middle of the Bible, it's kind of, um, for lack of a better definition, it was kind of treated like a hymn book. It's definitely more than that, not the same thing at all, uh, but that's kind of our best model modern-day equivalent uh, that we can kind of uh, compare it to. Uh, and so we've been making an effort to kind of walk through the Psalms together as a church family. And most of that, the lion's share of that, has come through uh, these kind of times of reading it together in the middle of our services and that kind of stuff, whether it's one a week or two a week or three a week or whatever. And then we've gotten the chance also to, to on occasion, preach through a couple of them, uh, a few of them, and kind of dive more deeply into those things. But whether it's in passing or, or the more in-depth type, we've committed to walk through these things together. And, and, and if you weren't paying attention, we, we actually kicked this grand effort off in February last year, which means we've been working on it right at 11 months now. Um, and Lord, Lord willing, I'm actually hoping we can finish it at the end of January. And so you may be thinking, well, there's a lot left. I don't know if you can count, Stephen. Um, well, we got this this giant plan to do like a, like a, a scripture reading night here uh, in a couple of Wednesdays, and I'm kind of excited about it, and I think we're going to knock out almost all of them that night, and, and then we'll set us our, ourselves up to, again, Lord willing, to, to maybe finish this in a year. And so I'm kind of excited about it. The pastor in the room geeks out about that kind of stuff. All right. Um, but uh, we have the privilege this morning of, of looking a little bit more closely at Psalm 87, and and Man, I think God has really kind of blessed our efforts in the Psalms. Yeah, yeah, reading them has been good, but uh, especially the times where we've dug in deep and, and gotten to, to preach through them, I, I think he's stretched us a little bit. Is that fair to say? Um, I, this, this may be a shock to you, but I tend to be the more analytical type. All right? Um, like I've, I've been trying to, to exercise and stuff, and, and normally I listen to audiobooks and podcasts. I know I'm a nerd like that, but I've run out of audiobooks for the year, and I won't start a new one until January 1, and so I've been forced to listen to music when I run, and I don't know what to do with myself, all right? And so I, I just don't think in those kinds of ways, and so the Psalms aren't what I run to when life gets hard. Is anybody else like that? 
I kind of like a, a clear to-do list. I kind of like a, a list of action items and a, and a clear logical flow. And, and the Psalms, they just don't really care about giving that to you. And it's not that they don't have logic. It's not that there, there aren't things to do in response to them. They're just not aiming for that. Those kind of things are on the back burner. The Psalms instead are emotion-driven. They're emotion-driven. And for some of you, that means that the Psalms are very much your jam. If you're more the wear-your-heart-on-the-sleeve kind of person, then you find the Psalms to be a dear friend to you. There's something that brings comfort to you and something that you quickly identify with. And, and, so, uh, and so for the cerebral folks, God has forced us to deal more directly with the uncomfortable. We, we don't, we don't want to lean into that, but for those of you who are, who are the more emotive type, then you finally get a sermon around here that, that, that's within your, your wheelhouse. It's on your wavelength. But like I said, the, the Psalms are emotion-driven. They're filled with imagery that's intentional about evoking something in you. They're trying to, to pull something out of you. And those, those emotions can be all over the place sometimes. Sometimes they're real high. Sometimes they're very low. Sometimes they're on the mountaintop shouting for joy. Sometimes they're deep in the valley wondering if they're going to make it through the night, right? And, and, and what's interesting about the Psalms is that sometimes they can be both in the same psalm. It's not just happy song, sad song, happy song, sad song. They can, they can make that grand shift between high and low, even within the same song, and sometimes even within a stanza or two. And so there's this grand sweep between the high and the low. And, and for the, 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 more, the, the, the more cerebral types, that, that probably like, strikes you as bipolar, right? Like you don't know how to treat them, and you're not sure that you like that kind of emotion spilling off the page. But those emotions can be all over the place, and they can swing wildly. The more I think about it, though, I'm not sure bipolar is the right descriptor for it. I think maybe the best descriptor for it is just honest. Like, the Psalms intentionally lean into the outburst. That's, that's clear, but it's, it's an outburst that I think everybody can understand and identify with and, and maybe, probably even, have experienced lately. I mean, can, can you get through a Christmas season without thinking what the Psalms are thinking? When, when families get a little tense, when the meal doesn't happen exactly like it should, when you open that present and it's exactly what you wanted, don't, don't the psalms resonate in that moment? And clearly some folks do a much better job at restraining the outburst, but may, know, may never go beyond a, an internal monologue for you, but, but man, we've, we've all been there. I, I, I think we all still get it. See, love them or hate them, and people seem to have opinions one way or the other, but love them or hate them, what needs to be seen and what needs to be celebrated about the Psalms is that they're real. They're real. Whether you respond well to that kind of emotion on the page or not, what they are is genuine. 
The psalm writers invite us into experiencing the, the heart and the, the struggle and, and sometimes the pain and a lot of times the rejoicing of God's people as they attempt to live with him in righteousness before him. And, and sometimes that, that, that response of God's people is joyous and sometimes it's marked by extreme failure and sin and a, and a whole bunch of time they're bouncing back wildly between the, the two extremes because they're that kind of messed up. All right? and, and God's people are, are just that kind of broken. But the more honest that we are with ourselves, the more I think that we'll see in our own experience, it doesn't look all that different from the Psalms. From those who are living that moment, I, I think we're maybe that kind of messed up too. We're also that kind of broken. And so while the Psalms may be a little hard to navigate sometimes during the, the, the seasons that we think we're all put together, I think a, a steady discipline to press in deeply to the Psalms, to chase deeply there, could actually help us during all the seasons, the countless seasons we don't like to bring up where we're not so put together. So you ready to look at Psalm 87? So we cover this every time we look at Psalms together. Uh, there's, there's what's called a superscript there. Uh, some of your uh, translations of the Bible will treat it as verse 1. Some will separate it out as a superscript. Uh, no matter which one, which route your Bible goes, uh, it's original to the text. And so we're going to call it a superscript today. So let's look at it. Um, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. So, sounds simple enough, Right? Like, sometimes we have superscripts that are like 12 sentences long, and we have to go through all the pieces, but awesome. We just knocked that out, right? So who are the sons of Korah? Well, we talked about this a few months ago, right, when we uh, looked at Psalm 49 together. But there's actually a little bit of debate about who the sons of Korah are. Uh, there are some that want to argue that it's a pseudonym, a pen name for uh, King Solomon, Right? Um, there are 11 psalms that are supposedly written by the sons of Korah. We already read one this, this morning. Psalm 85 was one of theirs as well. And so there's 11 psalms that were supposedly written by the sons of Korah. And, and most of them deal with the theme of wisdom. Right? And so King Solomon's supposed to be the wisdom guy, right? And so that kind of makes sense. Sure, yeah, yeah. King Solomon didn't want to attach his name to it, so he attached the sons of Korah's name to it, right? I mean, that argument does carry some weight, but... I think, however, a simpler argument is that these people were actually descendants of a guy named Korah. Uh, number 16 tells us the story that, uh, of a guy named Korah who led a rebellion against Moses in the wilderness, led a rebellion against his authority. It did not end well for Korah. All right? it, if you don't know that story, uh, God made it very, very clear how he felt about that little rebellion. All right, and so it did not end well for, for Koro, and, but several generations later, we're told that some of his descendants become a sort of guard for the tabernacle and the temple. And they, their, their, their responsibility was to guard the holiness and the, the sanctity of that place. We're told in 1 Chronicles 9, 19, that the Korahites were in charge of the works of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, as their fathers were in charge of the camp of the Lord. And so it was this family's job to protect the holiness of that space. It was their job, job to, to, to guard the threshold. There were, there were certain things that could not go into holy spaces and that holy space to remain holy. And so it was their job to keep those unclean things out of there. The unclean were prohibited from entering in and the sons of Korah were, were there for the express purpose of ensuring that space. There were a real group of people who spent a lot of time around the tabernacle and 
the temple. And so it's possible that Solomon took up their name as a pseudonym, but I think it's equally possible and much simpler explanation to say that while they're hanging around the temple all the time, while they're hanging around the tabernacle all the time, they wrote some songs while they were there. And some of those got picked up into the common rotation of music that we call the Psalter. Still sound simple? Seems like an easy explanation to me. So what did they write this time? Well, verse 1. It says, On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Okay, so apparently the sons of Korah want to take a moment and celebrate a place, a city called Zion. So where are we talking about? Talking about Jerusalem, right? And while the city is certainly impressive, we're, we're going to see several things coming down the pipe in this little song, this, several things in the upcoming lines that reveal that they're talking more about the idea of Zion than they are maybe you know, the physical place of Zion. But, but listen, while that may be easier for our modern Western ears to kind of differentiate between those two things, it, it wouldn't have been such a dramatic difference for the original audience. They wouldn't have seemed like separate things to them. To the ancient mind, the strong physical presence of the city of God would have been seen as a clear statement of who that God is. In other words, strong, healthy, vibrant cities declare His glory. They point to His goodness and they point to His character. And and so the Bible is just as clear in, in other places that God doesn't need that in order for His glory to go forward. He's not beholden to the strength of a specific city in order for his name to be made famous. And so he doesn't need that. But it's important to keep in the back of our minds as, as we see things you know, like this, if we come across places like this in the Bible where they're talking about stories like this or, or like maybe another story that you're familiar with, Nehemiah, when he finds out that, that the city has no, no wall around it, right? What does he do? He kind of flips a gasket. He, he, he has a moment of, of freaking out. And, and, and so the question is, why, why does he do that? And so he sees it as the city failing to represent who God is. He has a moment of panic because to Nehemiah, something incorrect is being told to the nations about God. The city is, is weak. The city is unprotected. Our God is not like that. It can't happen. So what, is it, what exactly is it about Zion that, that's so special to the sons of Korah right now? What do they tell us? It's a city whose foundations were laid by who? By God himself. God established this place. Which, I don't know if your head goes here, but this is where my head goes. I, I think it raises a, a really important next question. If God established it, Who's capable of unestablishing it? The answer is nothing. No one. There is no stronger enemy. There is no unforeseen circumstance. Not even the stupidity and ineptitude of God's people can undo his work. And there's a lot of that. Nothing. If God established it, then nothing else, absolutely nothing else is strong enough to overthrow it. Which, let's admit, sounds really awesome. Don't you want to live there too? The problem, though, is that that doesn't exactly bear itself out in history. At least not for the physical place. It wouldn't have been long after these words were written that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
Nehemiah blows that gasket for a reason. It's because the city is left in utter ruins. And yeah, they, they, they eventually rebuild it after you know, a good hundred years or so, but when they finally do that, it's only a couple hundred years, a few hundred years after that that it's destroyed again by the Romans. Keep fast forwarding. We, we see Jerusalem get tossed around back and forth from one empire to the next, handed back and forth after each crusade. Even in modern times, the, the, the city of Jerusalem isn't exactly known as the, 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 the land that clearly belongs to God's people for his glory. I mean, is that what you hear on the news? And so either it's kind of a load of baloney to celebrate Zion's gates and go on and on and on about how God loves that city more than the rest of Israel, or B, the sons of Korah are talking about something much bigger and much more eternal than just the political borders of the city. Not only does this idea of Zion, the, the city of God, extend past the establishment of Jerusalem, but it also predates it by a good bit as, as well. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that, that one of the things that drove Abraham's faith was that he was, quote, looking forward to a city that has its foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham longed for a city? The writer of Hebrews says so. Abraham trusted God. He pressed forward in faith. And the Bible tells us that one of the reasons for him pressing forward in faith was because God promised to create for him an eternal home. A home where he would, be, he would dwell as a citizen of God's good city. In peace and in rest with incorruptible foundations. But listen, we can also swing the pendulum the other way. Not only is the city of God an idea that the patriarchs talked about and celebrated, but we can like fast forward all the way past the apostolic age as well. The early 5th century theologian Augustine, he drew a line between the earthly city, the, the city of man, and what he called the city of God. I wonder where he got that from. He argued that all of the best things that could ever be attributed to Rome were precisely where Rome lined up with God's eternal design. And by contrast... All the stuff that, about Rome that Rome wasn't so good at, that was where their priorities and their practices diverged from what God was preparing for his people. And so when Rome flourished, it's because she was looking more like God's city. And when Rome fell, it's because she stopped looking so much like God's city. But most importantly of all, it's not city of God isn't just a beginning of the Bible thing, and it's not just a post-Bible thing. Most importantly of all, it's an end of the Bible thing. The Bible concludes by celebrating the emergence of the heavenly city, a new Jerusalem it's called, right? Coming down from heaven. A city without sin where, where the gates are always open and there's no need for a temple and not even a need for a sun anymore because God is there dwelling forever with his people. So even though the sons of Korah point to the good things being celebrated in the city of Zion, maybe the physical, political city, they, they, they see beyond, well beyond their present circumstances to a more eternal reality here. I don't know, that's a lot to pull out of just a few verses, Pastor. I don't, that's a lot to speculate on so far. Yeah, well, they keep going in verse 4. 
among those who know me. I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. So the sons of Korah want to point to five different nations here, right? Five different nations. And every single one of them at one point or another were either significant rivals or outright enemies of Israel. Some of them are are pretty quick to to pick out, right? Like Philistia. That's where the Philistines come from. Fun folk, right? You may have heard a story or two about them in the Old Testament. They don't exactly get along with Israel. Next is Babylon. There's a pretty big window of time that, that the sons of Korah could have been riding in. It's a whole family with generations and stuff. And so they were there with the tabernacle. They were there with the temple. We're not 100% sure when this song was written. But no, no matter where you want to land the plane, that came before Babylon finally came to overthrow the city. So what's going on here? I think probably Babylon's off in the distance and they're getting big. And they're growing. And they're kind of developing a reputation for themselves. But they're not very nice people. And tiny little Israel knows what's coming down the pipe. They will eventually bear the weight of Babylon. So there's the more obvious ones, like Philistia and Babylon. But then there are some other nations that you know may take a little bit more study to, to kind of figure out. Like Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab was a not-so-fun nickname for Egypt in Isaiah 30. Isaiah doesn't have kind words for Rahab in that moment. Then there's Tyre, with a Y, not with an I, different thing. Tyre was a Phoenician Canaanite city that Israel was unable to conquer when they entered the Promised Land. So they kind of lived as neighbors that shouldn't have been there, that, that Israel should have overthrown, but, but they weren't able to overthrow them. And so they were just there. And sometimes they were friendly and sometimes they were not. And like During David and Solomon's day, they were kind of seen as allies of sorts. But no matter where you want to point to in Old Testament history, they were never good people. It's made pretty clear over and over again that, that those from, from Tyre were, uh, that, that they were incredibly sinful, wicked people. They were marked by grave sin. And then you got Rahab, you got Tyre, and then finally the sons of Korah want to mention Cush. More often called the kingdom of Nubia. Think modern day Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, that area, just below Egypt. Um, so let's, let's try to summarize the, the, the guest list just a little bit. We've got Babylon a warring empire that will one day enslave them. We've got Egypt, a different warring empire that used to enslave them. We've got Philistia, a smaller but still warring nation on their border. We've got Tyre, a sinful rival and sometimes enemy neighbor on a different border. And then finally we've got Cush, which is a faraway kingdom that we honestly don't know much about. But we can game it out just a little bit because even in the best case scenario, even under the best of circumstances, Cush looked nothing at all like Israel. And they wouldn't have been considered holy. They didn't have the law. They didn't have any covenant promises. They didn't have the sacrificial system that allowed them to draw near to the presence of an infinitely holy God. They didn't have any of those things. So even on their best day, they don't have what it takes to be able to enter the holy city. 
We may not know about them, and that's assuming that they are benevolent and good and kind and friendly. We don't know that for sure. The fact that they made it onto this list tells us that's probably not true either. And here in verse 4, the sons of Korah are celebrating these different kingdoms' presence in God's holy city. Rivals and enemies now live here as a part of the family. How was your Christmas celebration? Fellow citizens of a city that, that bears testimony, supposedly, to the holiness and the greatness and the goodness of character of God? Those folks are allowed in there? Like we don't know about much about Cush, but even under the best of circumstances, they're they're not they're not on the same level. But we do know about Babylon; they're they're not nice people. We do know about Philistia. We do know about Egypt. We we know enough about them to know that those people don't have any business being in a holy city. But the sons of Korah celebrate that they're there. Even though that already sounds like a pretty extreme happily ever after to our modern ears. Remember who the sons of Korah are. Remember what they exist for. We, we need to see how absolutely ridiculous it is uh, that, that this is being proclaimed by the ones whose entire existence was to guard the holiness of things. If it was their job to to guard the the holiness, the sanctity of the holy space, the family placed in charge of preventing unclean things from entering into holy places is now celebrating the unclean from every corner of this place coming into the holy city and making their home there. And so either they are derelict in their duties, they are failing mightily, and their responsibility to uphold holiness, or B, there is something that has changed concerning the status of the unclean. Something's changed. Something has occurred that has, that has now opened the gates to those who were far off, and invites them in freely. Something has occurred that has shifted the, the circumstances. Anybody got a good idea about what that something might be? You you want to guess? Well, we'll get to that in a second. What else are we told in verse 4? This one was born there, they say. So apparently, these new arrivals are pointing out ones who have been there longer than them, treating them kind of like celebrities, I guess. I I don't know what that looks like in, in... This period of Old Testament history, do they have celebrities? I don't know, but they're kind of treating them like that. This one was born there. Do you see that guy? He's born here. There's a lot of debate over who exactly the psalmists are are referring to here. They're maybe referring to to Israel. You got the people who were from Israel and then the people who came in as outsiders. And and, and there's, there's some strong arguments for that. I I tend, however, to see this more as a picture of the church. Um, 
And you could say God's faithful people. The reason for that is because the writer of Hebrews, again, talking about a holy city, he picks up this imagery in Hebrews 12 where he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then verse 24, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the the writer of Hebrews takes this idea of God's heavenly city and he applies it to the church. Is he allowed to do that? I I guess so. I'm not. He is. Applies it to the people of God, redeemed and gathered together. They contrast Mount Zion with Mount Sinai. In other words, grace versus the law. So, so what do we do then with the whole new person versus the person that was born here part of this? How, how does that make any sense? Are, are there two pathways into God's holy city? And even when I ask that question out loud, I think you already know the answer, right? Are there two pathways into God's holy city? How do citizens of slightly uh, uh, vile and how do citizens of vile and wicked nations become citizens of God's holy uh, holy city? It's by having their sins washed white as snow, right? It's by having their guilt removed and their consciences cleansed. That's how citizens of vile, wicked nations become citizens of God's kingdom, become citizens of God's holy city. And so the next question is, well, how do citizens of slightly less vile and wicked nations become citizens of God's city? The exact same way. The exact same way. The sons of Korah foresee and celebrate the coming day with a capital D when redeemed and reconciled people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are drawn by God into his forever kingdom. So so what do we make of the born here comment then? If there's only one pathway into the city, what, what do we do with that comment? Well, the other side of the bait is that The other side of the debate is that these people from other nations are now being naturalized. Being naturalized, being the primary identity is no longer where they came from, but now who they have been declared to be. This one was born here. They they might have come from somewhere else. No, 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 this one was born here. Long here. Look at verse 6. This is where we get that argument from. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So the picture here is that I, I think that it's God is actively adding more and more citizens to the roles. He's making a grand declaration as he does so. This one, this one was born here. You may have come from somewhere else, but you're from here. You're from here. In other words, these new additions are not merely outsiders who have been privileged with getting to hang around for a while. They are now fully-fledged citizens of the city. They belong here. This is John 1, right? Those who, all those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who 
who, those who follow Jesus, those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They're not saved, but in a lesser way off to the side. They, they don't remain on the fringe. They are saved. A part of the family. A part of the kingdom. So if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I, listen, I really think you need to ask the question, why not? What's, what's standing in your way right now? Is it because you see yourself as an outsider who could never have access to God's stuff? On your own, that's absolutely true. But God is drawing in those who were far off. Even enemy-warring nations. Even those far away that we don't know much about. He draws them into his kingdom. Is it your sin that stands in the way? Renounce it then. Repent and turn to Christ. Trust Him alone for salvation. You can, you can do that this morning, right? The Bible teaches that we are all by default. We are all separated relationally from a holy and perfect God because of our sin. We are owed His righteous wrath. And I get it. The, the, the idea of being owed wrath is not something that sits pretty on modern ears. I, I completely understand that. But I would honestly submit that you don't, you don't actually have a problem with wrath you actually like it? I know that sounds outrageous, but I think it's true. It's because you'd be quick, especially quick, to agree that the most terrible people in history deserve wrath. Whether we're talking about murderers or your, favorite, your least favorite politician or people who you know, drive on the left, left-hand lane but do so too slowly, you'd think the world would be a lot better place if God started chucking lightning bolts every once in a while. The problem... The struggle for you is the prideful blindness that believes that you alone are the only person that doesn't deserve it. You don't struggle with wrath. You struggle with wrath directed to you. There's a difference. Everybody else out there are the ones causing all the problems in the world. The reality is that no one on the planet lies to you more than you. Not even close. But the Bible teaches that by default we are all, myself especially, separated from God because of our sin. We are owed his righteous wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. You know that gigantic holiday that we just got finished celebrating? The one where God came near He did that for a reason. It's kind of a gigantic deal. We celebrate that Jesus came. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a down payment of our future resurrection. So now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. And if you don't know him yet, you can do that right now. You can call on Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'm going to pray, and, and we're not quite there yet, but in a moment I'm going to pray and, and we're going to sing. That's, a, that's an opportunity to put action to what God is stirring in your heart. I'd love to be helpful to you. For those who are in the room, I'll be down front here. If you're watching us online, again, you can use the contact form that's linked in the video description. I'd love to help walk you through what that response of faith actually looks like. I don't think you need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. But, but what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How, how, how do we respond? 
Same as we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into the goodness of God. Or, or we can point to the last verse that we haven't read yet, verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Okay, so I'll admit, at first glance, it doesn't look like that stanza is connected at all to what we're talking about. It just seems to come out of left field, right? How, how in the world is that connected to what came before it? Well, what else are you going to do after you watch God make his name more famous like that? You're just going to sit there? When, when, when God decides to draw in others, and their story is not so positive, but God draws them in anyways, and this one's story is kind of crazy, but God draws them in anyways, and this story is kind of boring, but you didn't even know it, but God draws them in anyways, what do you do? The answer is you celebrate. You throw a giant party. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse said, Where God is, there must be joy. And where the church is increased by numerous conversions, the joy becomes exuberant and finds out ways of displaying itself. It'll go searching for it because it's got to do it somehow, some way, some shape, some form. It explodes. In other words, the appropriate response to watching God draw people to himself it's to sing, it's to celebrate, it's to rejoice. The ground may indeed be hard, but the spring will always find its way to the surface. And so if that's you this morning, if you're already a follower of Jesus, a citizen of this holy and eternal city that's coming down the pipe for us, whose foundations were established by God himself and therefore can never be undone, if that's you this morning, we sing, we celebrate, we rejoice. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond together, let's do that as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 87, a psalm that stretched me a little bit because I want I want a list of what to do. I want to I want action items to follow. More than anything else, I need to see who you are and revel in your goodness and revel in your bigness and sing and celebrate and rejoice in what you have been doing long before me and will be doing long after you close my eyes. You have called me to be a part of a city that has eternal foundations. You are doing a mighty, mighty work. But God, you're not done with that work. You're still establishing your city and you're still drawing in citizens and you, you've even called me, privileged me to, to be a, a part of drawing more citizens in along with you. Whether that's faraway nations like Egypt and Babylon and Philistia, or maybe it's my next door neighbor. Maybe it's somebody in the bedroom beside me. You've called me to go searching for those that without your grace would have no business in your holy city. Just like me. So God, as we, we sing, would you help us understand your bigness and your goodness to us? Would you spur us on to 
inviting in those from Tyre and Cush. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you draw people into your kingdom in this very moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. Change the status of people this morning. Make unclean things clean. Be careful to give you the praise as you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.